Imagine Freedom is brought to you by the Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center in Tallahassee, Florida. If you suspect trafficking or need help, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline 24 hours a day, 365 days a year at 1-888-373-7888 or visit humantraffickinghotline.org. This episode may contain content related to human trafficking and trauma that might be sensitive to some ears. Everybody is doing anti-trafficking work if they're doing anything out in the community because trafficking is happening everywhere and it is part of every community possible. And it's not that it's not happening, it's that people aren't knowing. I'm Robin Hasler-Thompson, the Executive Director of the Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center. And it's my pleasure to host these important discussions with survivors of human trafficking who are working to fortify our communities against the often misunderstood realities of human trafficking. Please join us as we educate one another and listen to what they have to say so that the freedom we imagine for all who are impacted by human trafficking soon becomes a reality once and for all. In this episode, we imagine freedom with Liz Kimball, a program specialist and board member at the Restoring Ivy Collective. She is a survivor advocate with the Global Center on Human Trafficking at Montclair State University and secretary of the Maryland Survivor Network. Liz is a survivor, lived experience expert of minor domestic sex trafficking, and has been working in the anti-trafficking field for over a decade. In our conversation, Liz shares her life experiences, her wisdom on how we can empower youth and families to be safe from human traffickers, and much more. Liz Kimball, it's great to be with you today for the very first Imagine Freedom podcast that we're doing, and it's a real honor to have you here in Tallahassee as well in person. I'd like to know, and like everybody to know, more of who you are, what you're doing. Tell us about what's going on in your life now. Thank you, Robin. So my name is Liz Kimball, and I am a survivor leader in the anti-trafficking movement. I am also a wife and a mom and an artist and an avid hiker. I work with survivors of human trafficking by providing programs around community wellness and bonding because I believe that that's what's lacking the most in the anti-trafficking movement is that community piece. Um, and so I strive to just provide that in my everyday work. We do that by um, focusing on recovery from substances and maladaptive behaviors to doing yoga and art and having financial literacy brought to the table. Um, and so the Restoring Ivy Collective that I work for in the D.C. area um, is survivor-designed led and focused. And so we we strive to bring in programming that most organizations serving survivors don't have the time for, um, kind of that second level programming. We focus heavily on the first level of emergency housing, meeting needs, three-month transitional housing, 
Um, but rarely do people have time to do the fun things. Yes. And so I bring the fun. <laughs> that is so great. You know, and, and what it what hits me about that, what kind of impacts me when you talk about it is how important it is to see people who have survived or gone through human trafficking, sex or labor trafficking as whole people. Uh, that and and whatever is going to work for somebody is going to be led by them, directed by them, be open to things that that person needs and wants. Not that they're checking off a list that an agency has, for mm -hmm. example, that this sounds like you really work with individuals. We really do work with individuals. And we believe that there are so many people out there working to meet those basic needs that every survivor will have. But what we're focused on is bringing that community back together. When I think about what I still need as a survivor of trafficking is that community, that bonding between survivors where we can be together, we can be in the same room, and we don't have to talk about our traumas. We just all know that the other has experienced something similar. And it creates an ability for us to kind of demask and stop pretending to be like everybody else in the world and just be ourselves. And I think that there's a misconception that survivors are only going to be interested in doing advocacy work as opposed to other career fields, having hobbies that are outside of that spectrum. And so we want to bring in the ability for people to identify those things and to be able to find relief and healing in ways that they didn't realize were possible. That's wonderful. And I'm thinking about right here in Tallahassee, you know, the work we do at the Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center and that with that anybody does in our area, we don't have a survivor support group. No. And that's why getting in touch with you and working with you on this program today that we had at the law school was so – has been so um, – Oh, gosh, I want to say impactful, but it's just informed our work so much because now we know we can refer anybody that we're working with here in Tallahassee to your online programs and uh, support groups. And right now, you know, post-pandemic, there is so much more that we realize we can do. It's not perfect. It's not like being in the same room, but sometimes that can be better, right? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, the pandemic actually – created a system that works really well for people, especially people with disabilities, people who can't function out into the world and need to be able to access what they need through their computers or devices. Um, and so by providing support networks in that way, we're, we're deconstructing barriers that mm. have otherwise always been present. Um, but more than that, we're also providing a possible model to every other city in the country for them to be able to not only support survivors but create pathways for survivors to create community models that they can implement uh, it, right wow. where they are. Yeah, because you're modeling it. Tell us tell us how if, if someone wanted to know more about Restoring Ivy, what would they where would they go? What's your website? So it's the the restoringivycollective.org. And you will find uh, a, a beautiful history of how we began and how Dr. Beth Bowman, who is our executive director, dreamed 
of our organization and, and why she built it in the manner that she did. Um, you'll find links to our support groups and uh, there is a Google form to fill out, um, but they are virtual, so they are accessible to anyone in the country that is a survivor of sex trafficking and looking for support. That sounds great. Yeah. 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 Okay. 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 Terrific. You know, one of the things we we talked about earlier is the idea that there are so many myths and misinformation out there. There's so much that people think of when they think of sex trafficking or labor trafficking that we know is not true. And it sounds like the work you do at Restoring Ivy in just in your own day-to-day life, you are encountering kind of probably all the time like we are. Yeah. Like, oh, that's what you think? Oh, well, for example, boys and men are trafficked too. A lot of people don't even realize that. Right, because the idea is a little girl standing on the street corner in lingerie and boys and men aren't going to fit that visual. So people are going to completely discount it from the get-go because they can't visualize uh, the vulnerabilities that boys and men are present with um, because of our ideas around our culturally acceptable behaviors from boys and men. And so um, the idea that they could be vulnerable, that they could be manipulated into being trafficked is such a hard concept to visualize that mm-hmm. they just choose not to. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such an important thing to realize because of that vulnerability, right? And that there are people that are vulnerable to, um, they could be vulnerable maybe not to sex trafficking, but to labor trafficking. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of both the overlap and maybe some of the work and some of the just things you've learned along the way when it comes to that overlap? Let's start with that. Absolutely. Um, My first point would be that sex trafficking is labor trafficking because the act of sex for the means of exchanging something of value is a labor. Um, So to separate them from the get-go is kind of irresponsible um, in that they, they do coexist together. Um, And then we're also finding that many people who've been trafficked are often checking off both boxes Mm -hmm. um, because the exploitation that occurs doesn't just occur in the moment of a sex act. It occurs in the forcing a survivor to go steal something for their needs. It occurs in gangs making children commit crimes to be able to join the gang and also to keep the older people from any harm of prosecution or, or involvement from law enforcement. Um, children are going to get off of charges easier. And so that labor component comes in and, and they're able to force labor onto you know youth and without facing major consequences as an adult might. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing that people who are brought over f- by diplomats and are put into debt bondage and forced to work and live in the same home and never have access to outside people. The idea that sex trafficking couldn't coexist in those moments would be irresponsible. So there is tons of overlap. Mm-hmm. There's tons of uh, marriage between between them. And it's really something for everybody to know. You know, I can say when I think of the justice system, for example, there could be charges of both that could be brought against a trafficker instead of just looking at maybe one, you know, one thing around sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. It could also be 
other charges around labor trafficking or other crimes. Mm -hmm. But also um, that saying we talked about today, which is if the mind doesn't know, the eyes can't see, Mm -hmm. you know. And so when we um, very often in the anti-trafficking movement, we, we talk about being aware, being aware. But if you don't understand, right, that sex and labor trafficking could be happening at the same time to a single person that looks like maybe only one has happened, you're you're kind of denying the realities of that person, number one. But as a law enforcement professional or as a, a service provider, you're not empowering that person the way they might need to heal. Am mm. I saying that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think also the idea that... Um, Many survivors aren't going to self-identify without community members having that information to help them identify. Mm -hmm. So if a law enforcement officer is looking only for sex trafficking, that's all he's going to see. Or if somebody's looking for just labor trafficking, that's all they're going to see. And a survivor themselves are not going to see either because they don't know what to look for. They don't have any idea about exploitation or what sex trafficking or labor trafficking actually is. So there's not going to be a point of self-identification for them to go out and receive more services. It truly entirely falls on the community to educate themselves and then look for things in ways that they hadn't been looking before. Great, great. And so this idea of education is really pivotal, isn't it? It really is. Education is key in every possible way. Um, We need our community to be educated. We need to make sure that our children are being educated. And traditionally, when it comes to human trafficking, the education for students doesn't start until 11, 12, 13 years old, if it starts at all. When in reality, it needs to be built into our healthy sex curriculums and it needs to be implemented from pre-K on in the most age-appropriate manner because without teaching about healthy relationships, without teaching about boundaries, without teaching about good touch, bad touch, children are often not identifying as victims or survivors until they've already been victimized Um, because they didn't have that education piece before. So it's not just the community. It's not just the adults that need educating. It's the children as well. And it's on the adults to make sure that's happening. Absolutely. So those adults, I mean, we talk about the schools a lot, but really it's in the home as well. Uh, Grandparents and parents, if you have a youth in your life, it's really incumbent on you to understand what's going on in that in that teenager or that child's life, right? Absolutely. It comes down to two things. The first is how are you monitoring the open access of the internet to your Mm -hmm. child? Not saying that you shouldn't let your child have devices or that you should have a million parental, you know, locks on things or even that you should be taking your child's device and going through it. It's Having the ability to have open conversations with your children about what they are doing online because they're going to do many things that we don't want them to do. But how can we open up the conversation and keep it flowing so that they feel comfortable enough to tell you what's going on in their Internet lives? And their Internet lives are as important as their real lives because that is the age we live in. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second thing is getting really comfortable with having really uncomfortable conversations. Like what? What are you thinking of when you say that? My son came to me and told me that he'd been approached online by an adult man. 
And we talked about all of the things that we've always talked about, you know, healthy relationships, boundaries, making sure we're not talking to strangers, giving people information about ourselves, and also making sure that he knows that without a doubt, if some adult tells him not to tell his parents, tell your parents. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. first sign of something bad is somebody telling you to keep a secret. If I had been any other person, I don't know that my son would have been able to come and have that conversation with me. And even as uncomfortable and upset as I was about what was going on, I had to keep a really cool mask on so that he knew that he was safe telling me and I wasn't going to react badly and get really upset. Um, I really believe that's because we started having uncomfortable conversations about everything you could think of as early as possible. And I think that when parents decide to put their discomfort away and just have the conversations they they didn't have with their parents, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's where we'll see a huge shift in the vulnerabilities kids have. Because if kids can't tell their parents what's going on in their lives when it's not bad, they're not going to be able to tell their parents when it is. And having a trusted adult nearby or that a child knows about, and hopefully it is a parent, like you're obviously an excellent parent, and you you. have that relationship with your son who came forward and said that. That's that's really a testament to your parenting. Mm. And then to, um, you know, for others where they might not have that, uh, if you're working with a youth, you might be that trusted adult. Mm-hmm. You might you might be a coach or you might be somebody else in that child's life. Or you're just the one adult who doesn't seem to shy away from having hard conversations. Um, I think adults forget the humanity of children and the reality that they're here and they're listening and they're taking in everything all the time. And Deciding not to have open conversations about things isn't going to get them where they need to go. It's just going to show them that certain people are safe and certain people aren't. You know, you're making me also think of another myth. So if we talk about things that are out there, I'm thinking about this idea. You mentioned vulnerability online. Mm -hmm. Kids are out there. We're not going to stop technology. Mm -hmm. They're going to even be more intrusive probably in our lives as we go forward. Um, And there's this... Uh, kind of myth, misperception out there that there are vans or people following you in the store, that there's Mm -hmm. a snatch and grab happening constantly by traffickers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's not the way it usually happens, is it? Not in the U.S. I mean, we have our rare um, circumstances like that with like Elizabeth Smart, Mm -hmm. who was abducted by a couple in a van. Um, And exploited. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, she doesn't represent the larger population of survivors in the U.S. What we're often seeing is not creeps following moms and small children through the store. It's people grooming young people in intimate relationships, romantic relationships. It's people hiring people to do a job and then pulling the rug out from under them and not getting giving them their money. Um, We're not going to see trafficking if we're looking for the wrong thing. And I think that's a really beautiful reason for why we're here today talking about this is to help make sure that the information is widely available to anybody. Um, But in the U.S., what we're going to see the most of is that intimate partner kind of uh, 
relationship that turns into a trafficking situation. Um, or we're going to find it's the diplomat who brought people with them from their countries and then took all of their visas away from them and forced them to stay in the home that they live in and never leave and never have access to people outside. Uh, so if you're looking for little girls being snatched into vans, you're not going to find trafficking mm -hmm. in your community, but I promise you it's there. The Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center, or STAC's, mission is to prevent, disrupt, and end sex and labor trafficking. STAC Pro is a free one-hour training program that empowers businesses, workplaces, and employees with greater knowledge about how to prevent, recognize, and respond to proactively end human trafficking. Demonstrate your commitment to supporting survivors and making your workplace and our community safer by participating in our free certification program. Learn more at stackpro.org. You know, one of the things that we talked about was how a tra trafficking is about money and time is money and the investment that a trafficker makes in a prospective uh, victim, mm -hmm. really, that they're seeking to victimize. Mm -hmm. Um, that's that grooming process, right? That's that time where they're investing with promises, where they're saying, if you do this, you will I'll put a roof over your head. I'll provide for your children. I will help you get this education, whatever it is, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So every trafficker is going to be taking risks. And the risk of Snatching a toddler from a mother in a store is high, and you have to be able to get away. You have to be able to continue to hide the child, and then you have to be able to profit off of it. So they're not going to often be snatching little babies from their mothers to traffic them. When a trafficker wants to make money, they will invest their time and effort in and money into grooming via love bombing, romantic relationships, um, giving somebody a really great job and giving them all these great perks and then throwing, you know, pulling it out later. Um, my pimp used to say money is time and it takes money to make money. And so he invested in getting my hair done and getting my nails done and buying me nice clothes. And in my little 15-year-old brain, I thought, oh, my God, he really loves me. And he's showing me that by doing all these things that I've never had because I've grown up so poor. And I didn't realize at the time that he was he was making me more attractive he was he was painting on the veneer that he needed for people to want to spend money to use my body it wasn't about him loving me it wasn't about him wanting me to have nice things it was about how to make more money off of me mm -hmm. and and you were in a position where you were saying someone's paying attention to me mm -hmm. someone finally gets me and is giving me what I would love, like I'm seeing on TV or I'm seeing right. other people in my school have or something. Well, and I didn't have a good example of healthy relationships growing up. My parents' marriage was incredibly toxic and incredibly violent. And so 
when this beautiful man was treating me with all this love and kindness and dignity and giving me all these material things that I'd never had before, there was nothing in me that said, this is bad, this is going to be bad. I was truly shocked when the trafficking began. I thought, I can't believe I fell for this. Mm. I can't believe it was that easy to get me to do this. And it really was about making sure that I, at the surface level, understood that I was consenting to this this new life. Because if I wasn't, then he knew that I could just go to the police and say, this, this weird man is making me do these terrible things. He needed me to believe that I was in power. I was the one choosing to do these things. Um, and then he needed to throw in the component of, and if you get caught, you are a criminal. You know, I'm not a criminal because I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm sitting over here far, far away. You're the one doing the criminal act. So if you get caught, you have to do your time and you have to pay for your crime. And there was no doubt in my mind that he was right. There was very little work that had to be done to groom me because I had been groomed my whole life. Thank you for sharing that. And you're very brave and courageous. And I, I think if I could say one of my reactions, I have many reactions to what you just said. Um, and one is that you were 15. Oh, yeah. It sounds like such a normal thing for a 15-year-old. And at the same time, being at the hands of someone who is such a skillful manipulator, mm -hmm. right? And that um, that – you know, where were the resources maybe that could have helped? Just going back a little bit to our conversation about a community's role. Right. You know, I'd spent my whole childhood being brought up in a pretty strict religion. So the church community was a huge part of my life. And I feel like that could have been a really great place for people to notice what was going on. Um, especially consistently watching me grow up, they could sh they could have seen and noticed behavior changes and new items showing up that didn't make sense from the you know having been poor and there was no good reason for me to have things that I had, but they assumed I was stealing them, so they it, it was still a lack of education. The schools could have known more. Had they been educated, social workers that were coming in and out of my house all the time, you know, mm -hmm. CPS involvement is a huge, a huge one that most survivors can relate to um, is having some level of CPS involvement in life. Because having been prior, previously traumatized is one of the number one ways that uh, number one risk factors for, for victims and survivors, um, because once you've been traumatized, you're your reaction to incredibly violent things is often lowered. You're often less likely to be moved by it. And so traffickers look for people who've had trauma in their lives. They look for people who've been sexually assaulted. They look for people who grew up with toxic families. They, they want to fill gaps where gaps need filled. And the community at large is really who should be filling those gaps. It's, yes. It's entirely on the community to fill the gaps where the parents are letting down, the families are letting down, and making sure that children are less likely to be vulnerable to trafficking if only the community came in and, and did something. 
Mm-hmm. And that message around the community needs to see this as a problem, mm-hmm. right? The, the community needs to see this as a reality, first of all, and then recognize what the role of each person, member of the community is mm-hmm. to do something. Absolutely. And it might be, too, um, thinking about uh, a child's parent who doesn't have access to housing or has just lost a job or is maybe themselves are are victims of violence, Mm -hmm. that that's a vulnerability that a trafficker will also take advantage of. Absolutely. I'm a second generation trafficking survivor. So my mother was trafficked as a child as well. And because of that, when I was being trafficked, she didn't see anything wrong with what was happening. And so that it it goes back to that idea that the community not only could have been supporting better, but if they had only known and been able to educate on trafficking, it could have prevented a whole lot from happening. And my mother would have been able to recognize what was going on with me by knowing what had gone on with her. And we would have had a very different outcome if the community had been educated and able to support us better. Which is why I work so diligently on on educating the community as much as I work on educating my children because I know that no matter how much I work at home with my own children, if I'm not doing the same with the community, when my children aren't with me and they're out in the community, they need to be as safe there as they would be at home. Um, and so I think that by... Asking what the community can do is just to learn and find out and look for signs and look for red flags and look for, you know, all these indicators that show that something isn't right. And even if it's not trafficking, it's still important. If a child is coming to school with bruises, you're going to report it. If a child is coming to school and being sexually inappropriate, you're going to know that something's not right. And so even if it's not trafficking, it's still our job to be educated on things and to be on the lookout for things and to be hypervigilant. Exactly, exactly. Well, your work today is so important and so um, amazing because you are – you're walking the talk and you're using your lived experience mm-hmm. to help everyone else to, to do better, right? Mm-hmm. To be smarter and to be aware and to make the world a better place. I know that sounds corny, but that's what you're doing. Yeah. You're just, you're, you know, this is what this is all about. And one of the things that I've seen, unfortunately, is a lot of times people want to, tr- you know, silo the issue of trafficking mm-hmm. and disconnect it mm-hmm. from resources or other things that are going on in the community. And and you can't do that. So whenever someone's doing, say, uh, maybe they're doing something with the unhoused population or maybe they're doing something around substance misuse or maybe they're doing something around, you know, uh, being a mentor – or helping somebody get a GED, they're doing anti-trafficking work. Absolutely. Everybody is doing anti-trafficking work if they're doing anything out in the community because trafficking is happening everywhere and it is part of every community possible. And it's not that it's not happening. It's that people aren't knowing, Mm -hmm. like you said. I think the work you do 
is helping people all the time. Because I think your work is helping people too. <laughs> thank you. And, you know, again, it's doing it together. Yeah. And also, you know, it also, it makes me think now too, if there is someone out there now who's listening and might be saying, hmm, I wonder if that is me or was me, what would you what, what would you think they should do? What would be your words of advice? My first words of advice is trust your instinct. I was in the car uh, traveling from New York to Arizona with two toddlers and a teenager, and all I wanted was a, a magazine to flip through to keep my mind from going crazy. And I got to a story about three women who were talking about their experiences of being trafficked, and I just hysterically cried for a good while and realized this is my story. This is that's what happened to me, but that's not the language that I use. I referred to myself as a whore, as a you know child prostitute. I never thought that what happened happened to me. I thought I did bad things and I was a bad person. And to read these stories of these women who were so brave to come out with such a shameful topic and and own it as a way to regain power was something that I could have never anticipated. So if you're out there and you're listening, the world, the universe works in mysterious ways. And if the conversation Robin and I are having today helps you to identify yourself as a survivor of trafficking, then I have done exactly what I set out to do. Um, please know that there are other survivors out there who are ready to wrap you up in love and support. And even if you never speak a single word out loud to the public, your existence and your experiences are valid and you deserve to have the community support from people who understand what you went through. And we're here. We're here. And hopefully we're, we're building that collective. I like that it's Restoring Ivy Collective that you're working on. And it really is that collective response. Um, I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. Thank I mean, you. Everything we've talked about today and our work together so far it's been brief, but it's it, and it is so meaningful. I really thank you for your your wisdom, your thoughts, your love. I mean, I can feel that you're sending it really through these microphones yeah. into this podcast, and um, I'm so grateful. So thank you, Liz. Thank Kimball. you, Robin. Thank you for listening. The Imagine Freedom Podcast is a production of the Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center, or STAC, a coordinator and service provider for survivors of human trafficking. STAC empowers sex and labor trafficking survivors and educates communities so they can recognize, report, and prevent trafficking. As a member of the National Human Trafficking Hotline, STAC exists solely to assist all sex and labor trafficking survivors, regardless of age, immigration status, sex, gender identity, or faith affiliation here in Florida's Big Bend.